Today's episode is brought to you exclusively by the good folks at Blue Note Therapeutics. Blue Note creates prescription digital therapy apps to help patients address the common yet overlooked side effects of cancer, like stress, anxiety, and depression. Check out their new fully remote clinical trial at bluenotetherapeutics.com backslash trials. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I am so excited for my guest today, Stacy Runfola, um, an old friend of mine in cancer land um, and someone that is near and dear to my heart. I also have Kellen Wellborn, co-host extraordinaire, is joining us on the Zoom, not in person because I think everyone's pretty much getting COVIDed. Is that, (laughs) Kellen, are you being COVIDed? Well, I definitely feel like every week at this point, if we can make it from a Monday to a Friday and at Friday we've made it through, it is real. It's a real test of our patience and also just our, our boss. It's just, it's crazy. This week we've all had PCR tests at some point in our house. We all have had symptoms and they all come back negative this week, but it is with kids in school. It is, man, it's a tricky situation yeah. for sure so so my wife was tested positive last week elsie tested positive again but she's not symptomatic so it's like i've come up with a rig for our family where we just have like a, a swab up our nose at all times and it stays there yeah. and then we just get like every 24 hours we get a response and a new test result right um stacy yeah. have you been have you been um coveted or are you escaped so far oh i haven't had it yet but i've about half my staff has and I'm I've got like home tests every time that a ship home test comes in I'm ordering another shipment because they're that hard to get and and I've tested a lot a lot <laughs> yeah well yeah, hey, we definitely we're, we're basically we should all buy stock in the home tests because I don't think that uh, I don't think those are going away anytime soon no and I don't have foresight like that so I like that Kellen um okay <laughs> so our show today is all about Stacy so Stacy lost her husband, Rick, to cancer in 2014. Is that right, Stacy? Yep. That is correct. Um, so we're going to talk to Stacy about cancer and love and loss and, and grieving and coping and all the things that she's had to do and caregiving. Um, so thank you for taking the time. Stacy also runs a very uh, busy business down in South Florida. So, or I think your business goes all through Florida, right? Uh, mostly South Florida. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there are other people doing the same thing as me all over the country, but I'm all, I'm down here in South Florida. Yeah. So before we launch into the, the, the background talking about you and your, your husband, um, yeah, tell us what you do. All right. So I own laundromats, which is a, an interesting field that many people don't know a lot about. And I've, I've taken the tack that I do with almost everything that if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it the best I can. So I run really awesome, beautiful, uh, large, clean, attended laundromats with customer service and 
pickup and delivery and uh, all kinds of stuff. So it's really different than the laundromats that I'd ever known growing up or like, you know, the hole in the wall that you walk into and you don't want to put your laundry in the machine. But I own three laundromats and then a really big thriving pickup and delivery service. So that's amazing. And, and <laughs> anyone who's going to listen to this podcast is going to get to know that Stacy is a ambitious go-getter and she is a light man like I could listen to you talk about laundry or um, baseball or gators or whatever because you bring you just bring this unique energy and enthusiasm and I've you know I see that um, I've gotten to meet you in person and I saw that and I also see it online so um, so it's just amazing so I want you to take us back now Um, actually as we get started here I want to read a post that you wrote Oh boy. This is where social media can hurt us yeah. or inspire oh, what us. Did I, say? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. This is, but this is a really beautiful post. So this is April 1st, 2021. I hope it's okay if I share this. Of course. Okay. So this is, um, this is what Stacy wrote. It seems that I use the same word to describe this day each year, but it holds true. Bittersweet. There's no more fitting word to encapsulate the joy and fulfillment of the day I became engaged to marry this man and the devilish look in his eye all day long on April Fool's, but also the same exact day I buried my husband just three years later. When we decided to get married, we felt the world was at our fingertips. We were so ready to build our dreams together. We had no idea that surviving terminal cancer would so quickly become our only dream and goal. Ten years ago today, Rick asked me to be his wife. Seven years ago today was his funeral. He knew me so well on so many levels. He had expectations for me to fulfill after he died, and I'm entirely certain he would be really proud of me today. I don't wish widowhood on anyone, but I am surviving and thriving even while I continue to live with the grief of his loss. My life and relationship with Rick helped develop the person I am today. With each success, I can hear his completely unsurprised response running through my mind. And with the setbacks, I dig deep to try to feel his encouragement. I I share that because it was such a profound post and really hit me at the time. And then hit me, of course, again today before I talk to you. Um, So let's go back and talk about that emotional journey. So um, the proposal, April 1st, 2011... Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I was definitely not that girl who ever dreamt about my wedding or proposal, not even a little. Um, and it just so happened that, you know, we met and then at, at some point I was like, hey, we should, we do want to get married. Let's, let's do this. And we worked together. So we spent a lot of time together. Um, and and yeah, that, that devilish grin, that really is so descriptive. He proposed on on April 1st and we spent the whole day at work. I knew it was kind of coming. I just didn't know when, you know, it's, it, we were we were not young. So it wasn't a complete surprise. We had talked about these things. Right. I think the first thing I walked into my office at work and I I see this little box sitting there. I was like, oh, what's this? What's this box? And I open it up and there is a ring holder, like a crystal ring holder just sitting. I think it was like half shoved in my purse or something like, really, what is happening? And then all day it was just little stuff like that. Um, Funny kind of things. And I actually used to work, I used to teach dance also. So when I was leaving my day job where we worked together and going to the dance studio, 
we're out in the back parking lot behind work. It's all like, it's not even paved. There's garbage cans and stuff. And he just looks at me and goes, so are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> what? No, I'm running to work. I have to be there in 10 minutes and we're going to, what? <laughs> Looked at him. Like, are you crazy? And then he pulls out of a box and the roses, which <laughs> because I'm not really good like that and I mm. up and of course it's empty and he's like okay see you later and then I oh my him. gosh oh, that, that's my proposal story <laughs> getting, getting engaged later that night when I was done with work but uh yeah we had a fun relationship so he was diagnosed after the proposal he was actually after our wedding because okay because we worked together, you know, everything was uh, done based around work. And we looked at, hey, well, we're, we're engaged now. And when can we get married? And we looked and we said, well, we can get married July 3rd or July 3rd next year. That's pretty much it. <laughs> so we got married three months from the time we got engaged. And uh, true to form in three months. And actually, at first, we said, well, we're not going to have a wedding. Like, you know, it was his second wedding. And for me, I just didn't care that much about weddings and things. Well, we'll just get married. We'll have a small thing with our families. And finally, he convinced me that um, I think you should have a wedding. We should have this. I want our families to to meet and, and all of that. So it was probably three or four weeks before we decided we're going to have a wedding, which left 10 weeks to plan a wedding and execute. Oh my gosh. Which we did. <laughs> like a full on wedding with a band and a rehearsal dinner and a bachelor party, bachelorette party and everything. Uh, ballroom, caterers, cake, the whole thing in 10 weeks. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I sometimes think when I think back and you say, I like most people in our world, I really hate the everything happens for a reason phrase. But that maybe did happen for a reason that we just were like, well, we have to get married now because we don't really want to wait. And then we got married and it was three months after that that he got diagnosed. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I was very happy that we didn't, you know, wait a year and have some long engagement planning some elaborate wedding. We had an elaborate wedding anyway, but we didn't plan yeah. very well. So, I yeah. mean, just emo so emo talk about a, a punch in the gut. I mean, how? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that initial period when the diagnosis happened yeah it was um it was really crazy as i mean i think any of these diagnoses are really crazy um he he did not actually have colorectal cancer he had peritoneal disease with an unknown primary they still don't know and will never know exactly yeah. where his cancer came from but similar to colorectal cancer he it asymptomatic until you're way, way, way far along. So he didn't know that there was anything wrong. Um, he had had colonoscopies, uh, everything on time, all of that, uh, and nothing. So definitely took us by surprise. We yeah. get to do a traditional honeymoon because like I was saying, we planned everything really fast. We work, we had things going on. So we got married and I think we took a day off and then we went back to work. And we finally um, planned to just go on like a little weekend vacation was our pseudo honeymoon that actually a bunch of my friends had had bought for us as a surprise. And it was actually while we were there that he had his first uh, major symptoms. And 
we thought maybe he got overheated. It was summer and we had been outside and we had a little bit to drink and oh, well, it must just be that he got nauseous and was throwing up, even though we didn't think we had that much to drink, just dehydration. And um, we didn't think much of it. And yeah. then it didn't seem to be getting better. And so, you know, that's, uh, that wasn't, that was the beginning of it. And when we looked back, we knew that that was the beginning of his symptoms, but we didn't know it at the time. Um, I had a store that at the time I lived in Buffalo, New York, I wasn't in South Florida then, uh, we had a location in Pennsylvania and I was putting in a whole new computer system point of sale. And I had to go there to install it and train everybody there. So I had gone away, um, just a couple of weeks after. And while I was gone, he started feeling really sick. Um, he didn't tell me because I was away and all this work and he didn't want me to stop doing the work that he had to get done. And on my drive back, uh, he said, Hey, I really don't feel good. I'm going to the emergency room. So I went to the emergency room and they said, Oh, well, it's your gallbladder. It needs to come out. You know, that's you have gallstones. That's what it is. They did scans. All they saw was gallstones. He really did have them. Um, he went in for the surgery. That was my first stint in the waiting room, uh, waiting room hell, as all the uh, all the caregivers know, it's the one of the hardest parts is waiting, just like all the patients know, waiting after a scan, you're just sitting there. So um, I didn't think much of it at first because I thought, hey, well, this must be the answer to all of the things that were wrong. He has gallbladder and his gallbladder's coming out, no big deal. Um, when it started taking a lot longer than the doctor had told me that it would, I started getting nervous. And then the doctor did finally come out and said, well, you might've noticed that it took longer than, than it should. Uh, his gallbladder came out. He did have stones. His gallbladder looked healthy other than that. I'm sending it off. And, uh, but you should know there was this brown liquid all in his abdomen. And that's what took so long because the abdomen was completely full of this liquid and it's called ascites, which of course I had never heard of. Um, he says, and I can't really tell you if it is or if it isn't, but usually that means cancer. Right. Oh, what? Oh, that was a, that was the major shock. And Rick, of course, was still in recovery. He wasn't even awake yet. So now here I am. I know this information. He doesn't know this information. Um, and it was upsetting, but I didn't realize the extent because not knowing anything about this world you don't know what ascites means. You don't know how serious that is. And the fact that nothing had shown on scans, well, that doesn't mean anything because that doesn't show on scans and peritoneal disease isn't going to show up. And so I didn't know any of that. I was a cancer virgin at the time, I guess. Right, right. And and the doctor said to me, well, you know, we'll wait until pathology comes back and then we'll call you in. And then pathology came back and they called us in and they said, well, you do have this cancer and uh, we'll send you to an oncologist and well it's not curable but it's treatable and I will never really forget that phrase because Oof. they just tell you that they don't know what to say mm. and they give you these expectations that are completely let you become false expectations you know I don't think that's the intent but to me I mean I ask questions I ask well what does that mean well, you know, we can treat you and it'll, it'll help and chemotherapy will extend your life. So in my head, the newlywed, like, oh, okay, well, we're going to have 10 years together. That's, that's okay. I can handle 10 years and I'll yeah. deal with the fact that 10 years from now, it won't be enough, but 
that's really what I thought. Um, and I thought also like, oh, well, you'll do the chemotherapy and then you'll be done with it and you'll be healthy for the rest of the 10 years until something else happens, which of course is not at all the case. Um, so it didn't take too long to start getting up to speed on things. Um, I first found all the, the like online groups and things when we were a little bit into our treatment schedule already. He had started on Full Fox. Um, and of course I started looking for, you know, side effects and, and what can you do about it? And that starts to lead you to these online groups to get information. But what really did it was our oncologist had mentioned, hey, there's this surgery, which you know all about, um, but there's this surgery and the way he phrased it was, well, they go in and they just like pick out all the little bits of cancer and, and he didn't really tell us the name of it or anything like that, but just said, once we finish this first part, you know, three months, then we'll look into that. Right. So, um, from there I got aggressive and finding people who would tell me more and, uh, a cousin of Rick's who I had actually never met, he couldn't make it to our wedding. I had never met him but is an oncologist in another state. And so his parents put me in touch with him and he and I became like besties for talking on the phone all the time. Uh, poor guy, never met me, but uh, was amazing to me and gave me so much knowledge, helped me understand all the medical jargon, helped me get papers when I needed to read them, um, anything I needed. And he actually uh, had still had a contact at Roswell Park, which is an NCI center that's right in Buffalo. And he had done his residency there, still had some contacts and asked around. And as it turned out, we had three different surgeons performing cytoreduction and HIPEC right there. So he got us an appointment with one of them. And then I decided, well, I'm gonna look up this doctor and find out who the heck he is. And I found some posts on one of the online sites. So uh, hold on one second. Yeah. I'm interrupting you at this point because I have to say this this part where you jump in and take action and get in touch with all these surgeons and gather all the information like this is a phenomenon that is very um, common in the cancer world. And most often it's the female spouse who is jumping in and doing all this like yes. a, a lot. And this so this is a, one of the themes in Man Up to Cancer is that sometimes a lot of the guys just either don't have the capacity or just bury their heads or, or their, or whatever. But a lot of times it's that partner or spouse who all of a sudden is like the superhuman gatherer of information. So you're in that phase right now where you're, you're taking in all this new information. It's incredible overload. I call it the fire hose period where you're yeah. just trying to digest all this information and make these decisions. And you're dealing with a medical establishment that is, um, a medical establishment that is very, they're, they're super familiar with all this stuff. Like they deal with it all every day, all the time. Whereas you are just learning everything. So, and, and not to mention you're newly married, you have this relationship, like it's incredibly overwhelming and, but you just jumped right in. I think we've also talked about that with on this podcast where caregivers particularly it's how they can feel control over an uncontrollable situation that they also are not, you know, like you're the support system of, and you feel like, what can I do? You know, like what, what is it that I can do? And so to gain some traction in your mental health, as much as you can at that moment, you kind of try to grasp at that, that moment of like, if I get information, this will solve, like, yeah. it will just kind yeah. of, you know. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, it's so 
overwhelming for us as the partner, but it's also overwhelming to say to yourself, like, holy crap, look at what they're going through. You know, this person's going into chemo and getting hooked up and going through the side effects. And, you know, like most couples that I've met in this situation, I'm there thinking, wow, look at what he's going through. And he's there saying, oh, yeah. gosh, what am I putting my wife through? This right. So much she's going through. So, you know, and I don't know of almost any situation where each partner doesn't feel that way. Um, you know, and it's sometimes different roles, like, uh, for us. And I think a lot of times it is true. Um, I was the information gatherer and I did all the research and he went to the treatments and it worked for us. He's a super smart guy. He could understand anything, but he didn't want to, he felt so confident in my ability to do that. And he also saw that that was, you know, helping me in a way. Um, that he felt like he could focus on the more normal things, uh, raising, he had three kids who lived with us full time. So I was a stepmom. Um, so raising kids and our business and focusing, you know, that's a good thing to get his mind off of it. Hey, let me do the book work at, at work. And meanwhile, I'm like kind of putting off my part of the business so that I could spend extra time researching and doing as much as I can. And of course. Uh, it really worked so well for us. And I think so much of that was because we'd worked together for so long and we worked together um, for many years before we ever started dating and we were uh, managing these businesses together. We had a lot of confidence in each other. And so he had so much confidence that, you know, he doesn't need to do the same research as me because whatever I come up with, I'm not going to steer him wrong, you know. And it's time for a quick break. We want to thank Blue Note Therapeutics for sponsoring today's podcast. Man Up to Cancer only partners with companies that offer real solutions for our community. Blue Note's mission is to ease the emotional burden of cancer and improve health outcomes. The company takes cancer-specific face-to-face therapies and recreates that experience in a digital format on your phone. These digital therapies address the emotional challenges that myself and many of us face, and they're accessible on demand anytime, anywhere. Check out their new fully remote clinical trial at bluenotetherapeutics.com backslash trials. Big shout out to Jeff, Laura, Mark, and the rest of the Blue Note team. We are so grateful for your support. So, and I'm going to apologize because I'm asking you to skip over big (laughs) weighty, like emotional sections of your life to different aspects of this that I want to focus on. So I hope, I hope that's okay. Yeah, of course. Could we, I'd love, I really want to focus on right now that period of, can you tell us what you remember most about the end stage period and caring for Rick through, through his death? And you had to, um, you had to learn a lot of like nursing skills around that time as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest thing that I remember is that there were not any resources, meaning that when I was looking for side effect treatments and stuff, there were all these caregivers and all these patients and all of these groups and people talked about things, but there was nobody who was talking about this stuff. Um, And that has changed in, in recent years and hopefully partly from work that I've done to try to make that change. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't there. I, out of the caregivers who I knew, no one else was in that stage. And anybody who had previously been in that stage wasn't around, weren't in groups. There wasn't any, any resource at all. Um, 
all of the nursing stuff, uh, you know, you learn it and they you get a home nurse who might come and teach you. One of the things that I've tried to pass along to as many caregivers in that situation as I can is it doesn't matter how smart you are and it doesn't matter how capable you are. This is a time that you have to pretend that you're not because you won't get any help if they think that you can do it. Um, wow. It's really hard. Like a person like me, I don't think I, I didn't take my own advice. I don't think I knew it yet. But for me, you know, they came once like, this is how you do TPN. You uh, mix this, you mix this, you take this out at this time. And I wrote it all down and then I followed the steps and then that was it. I was on my own. Uh, same thing for running IVs and, you know, I did antibiotics and all of that stuff. And I realized why are other people getting, you know, I, people are getting people coming to their house every time for them. Why am I not getting this? And it's because they assess like whether they think that the support system can handle it. And if they think the support system can handle it, that's it. You don't get anything else. So that well, so talk about like a punishment because because then <laughs> you're you're basically handling the practical needs of you know the ostomy bag, the injections, the different the right. meds, like all that stuff, and also. Um, walking that road of a spouse with a husband who's dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that I really, I pass along that little tidbit now a lot because it's, it's hard and it's hard to give that up also because that had been my role for a long time in addition to being a spouse, but being the one who takes care of Rick. And even though he wanted to spend time with me. He also wanted me to be the one to take care of him because I'm his yeah. wife and he trusts me and he's comfortable with me. And you know, a lot of times the nurses and, and it's, I've had, we had some amazing nurses, but there are a lot of nurses who just kind of talk down to you or just pretend like you're not there talking as if you can't hear. And that doesn't feel good to anybody. Um, so in a lot of ways, he preferred that I would do these things anyhow. Um, and I don't regret anything that we did or the ways that we went about things. In fact, um, for it's like anything else in life, you have to make the decision that's right for you. So when we did bring hospice on, um, we had somebody come into our home to do the initial evaluation. And the nurse looked at me and said, she, I think she might've actually patted me on the head. I might've made that up in my, in my <laughs> memory. She like patted me on the head and she said, oh, it's okay, honey. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the idea of that is great. Like, sure, I should just be with my husband and time with him. And in theory, that's great. But she wouldn't let me ask a question. I said, well, you're changing all of his medications. Can you tell me what this does? Oh, you don't need to worry about that. Like, oh. What do you mean? I've spent two and a half years worrying about exactly that. I want to know what this is. And you're not going to be here 24 hours a day. I want to know what these different things are. Um, and it wasn't good. It wasn't a good fit at all. She wouldn't tell me anything. Uh, she just talked to Rick as if he wasn't in the room. And, and when Rick said, you know, I don't think this is a good fit. Um, we talked about it. We decided we were going to fire hospice. Yeah. The nurse came to me and said, you're not thinking about this right. What do you <laughs> I, I realize it's an emotional state and maybe I'm not thinking clearly. So maybe you can tell me, you know, what is it that I'm not seeing right? Well, if you don't use hospice, 
then you're not going to be able to have the hospice support after your husband dies. So you won't be able to have therapy after he dies. Oh my God. Wow. Really? That's <clears throat> right. <laughs> what? Um, so we fired hospice. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly we did. Um, and that's another thing that I've learned, you know, I learned it after the fact that many places have more than one hospice facility. So just like I went and looked and is this surgeon, the right surgeon for us, I right. could have interviewed hospice facilities, but I didn't. And part of that, because, you know, our doctors, like many doctors didn't want to tell us, Hey, this is really the best next step for you. They wanted to pull for us and, and take care of us. And so we didn't look into it till we were at a point where, hey, we need somebody today. <laughs> we're going into the weekend and we can't get pain managed. So there wasn't really time to say who's the right one or is there more than one? It was like, hey, here's hospice, here's a referral. They're coming to your house tonight. You'll have medications delivered. Um, so I tried wow. <laughs> also like, don't do that. You know, look into this earlier. It's not, it is scary because of course you don't wanna be in that position. But it's not as scary as you think if you take the time to look at it more like another another doctor, like I would research an oncologist or a surgeon. Um, and you need to do the same thing. That's great advice. Well, yeah. is it correct? Is it correct? I'm a, I I have a family member in hospice right now, an elderly family member, and, and it seems like it also uh, one of the things, even if the people aren't always obviously a fit. It sounds like one of the benefits, like you're mentioning with the hospice care is so crucial is that box of meds that you get with, you know, that you have available and they'll tell you when you can use certain things and things like that. But for that pain management care, it sounds like that's where you really came up against needing that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the nurse, the caretaker. It was, it was, it's the pain meds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we stayed with them through the weekend because we knew there was not really any other choice to get what we right. did. And then on day, he fired husband and uh, we went back to just, you know, our oncologist and we did have a palliative care team. So we went, you know, back with the palliative care team. Um, and then a whole series of different situations happened. I don't need to get into the medical nitty gritty because everyone who would be watching this podcast probably has their own stories of similar, similar things. But uh, in the end, our palliative care doctor from, uh, from our cancer hospital set us up with a palliative care home team that wasn't through hospice, um, but they, they are able to take people through end of life. So very similar to hospice. And that's who we ended up going with. Uh, when they came in to interview with us, it was a totally different situation. Um, really different atmosphere. The doctor himself actually came and met with us and visited with us. We discussed what our preferences were, you know, Rick would prefer to be at home. And then Rick told the doctor, you know, listen, I do prefer to be at home, but if at any time you feel that Stacy shouldn't have me here and it's too much for her, then he, you know, Rick gave myself and the doctor permission to move him into a facility, which we never did have to do. We were able to sleep in bed together, still like almost cuddle or snuggle at night, even through like the very end, um, which was just incredible. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we we had tons of conversations. Rick would, uh, you know, he, he would always try to do things like, hey, I need to tell you about, you know, 
passwords and and <laughs> work. Oh, don't forget you have to pay the taxes on this day and this day. And I just be like, la, 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 la. <laughs> oh, I don't want to hear this. I don't really care. I'll figure it out when the time comes. I I don't need to know. Um, even though I did need to know, of course, but but we had you know all the conversations. We had conversations about moving to Florida. I mean, he, I have family in Florida, which is how I ended up here, but you know, he told me to move to Florida. He didn't tell me to, or he would never (laughs) tell me what to do in any situation. We found our times to be able to just be close and be in love. And, you know, everyone who met us, doctors and surgeons and nurses and anybody who met us often said the same thing without even knowing it, which was like, I've never seen this kind of love and connection. And it just almost feels like for whatever reason, you guys have this short time. So you were able to get this whole lifetime of love, like packed down really, really short and super intense. And it's really true. Our, our whole relationship was so intense because I think it was that whole life that we were supposed to live together all boiled down into a few years powerful wow um so let's talk about the 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 gr- what did your grieving process look like if you were to try to describe that to, to yeah. us yeah <laughs> so uh the grieving process that's a tough one it's crazy i mean i i remember the moment that rick died um it, his dad and other people had just left for the day you know for the night and i was there um you know, and people say, hey, they wait till they want to. And maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, my brother and my dad were still in the house, but they were somewhere totally different. They were, you know, out of the way. And, you know, that was when Rick died. And I can remember being extremely calm, um, like supernaturally calm, I guess. He died and I knew that he had died. There was no question in, in my mind. And I just, took a minute and I just like sat there with him and then I really calmly got up and I walked to the other part of the house where my dad and brother were and I said hey I just wanted to inform you Rick died and I'd like some time alone with him in private mm. want you to do anything or come near me I'll be back I can remember just you know having my alone times and thinking did that sound come out of me like this primal sound that I've never heard before. I wouldn't be able to fake if, if I tried, um, just this like scream that came out of me and I heard it. And it's like, I know it must be coming from me because the house is empty. Um, it's just brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Um, and then you kind of go through the motions and like people say, it's really true. There's shock. And so you just kind of get through things. So it's like, okay, well, a funeral, okay, and we have a burial, and uh, his family's Roman Catholic, and my family's Jewish, and we had already talked about all that, too, like, what we wanted to do, so we did a wake, and then we did a shiva, we did, you know, and um, so you had all of that, and I think probably all of that is the first and only time that I actually did what people tell you you should do, and just, like, let people help, Um, you know, People planned, okay, people are bringing over food for the Shiva. Okay, all right, whatever. Um, some some family members, some cousins of Rick came and like helped clean the house and get rid of some of the supplies and things that were in the way and just like put them in the basement. And, okay, all right, great, do whatever you want. Um, 
And so, so all of that kind of happened in a blur. Um, and then his burial, as you started out by saying, was actually April 1st. He died March 28th, and it's just when it happened to be. And I found that very, uh, you know, you find you find meaning in things when you need to find meaning in things. So for me, it was like a weird, oh, that, that's strange. Yeah. Um, you know, he lived two years and five months almost to the hour from the day that he got diagnosed and had that surgery from like the time that the doctor came out to me and said, hey, he has this brown fluid until the time he died, like almost to the hour. Um, and it was also like his his high pec surgery to the time that he died. It was like everything was like these weird dates and weird times um, that you just start seeing all of this stuff. Whether you believe in anything supernatural or not, you just yeah. start to see it. Um, all the time and people always talk about oh well you see things like pennies are a big thing that people say that they see and you know the logical part of me i'm pretty logical so it's like yeah people find pennies all the time they're everywhere <laughs> but i started finding pennies like in weird places and i went actually went at first it didn't really occur to me like i was thinking wow that's so weird like i was just thinking about rick and then there was this penny and telling like having these conversations with myself that's stupid you just found a penny because there's a penny you know but then it's like yeah but i was just thinking about this and it showed up and it wasn't there and then i was cleaning out his desk uh, at work and i found this container i had bought for him when i was on vacation once and and we weren't together and it was full of pennies and that reminded me that during the time we were dating, and you know, I've mentioned a million times that we worked together. So we kind of kept our dating on the down low until, you know, because all of our employees and, and all of that, uh, you know, we just were quiet about it. Um, so we would like secretly leave each other pennies. Like I would see his car in a parking lot somewhere and I would go like leave a penny on his car to say like, hey, I saw you. I was love it. And I had forgotten about that until I'm asking, there was this little container I bought him and it was full of all the pennies I had given him. And I was like, wow, okay, that is weird. And I'm finding pennies. And then when I went on my very first date after, uh, it was, you know, a few years after Rick died and I was like freaking out because I didn't know, like, I don't want to date, uh, a million trillion emotions. And uh, I'm on my first date and we walk into a place to go have lunch and a penny drops. <laughs> Hell knows where, like hits the door frame, clinks. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> what is this? Right, is that an so, approval or, or are you being chastised? Right. <laughs> what is this? I don't know what you're telling me. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff. So. And I hate to say this because we are running short on time and I'm not letting you off the hot seat. You are having the gauntlet of random questions coming at you in a minute. Um, All right. So we literally like have like one or two minutes before we have to get to that. But what I want to spend those on is this. Um, in the Man Up to Cancer community, we talk a lot about using the tools in the toolbox to cope. Whether, you know, there's um, meditation, music, um, exercise, diet, um, counseling, sometimes meds. Um, there's So there's so many different tools, right? Can you talk a little bit about your go-to tools since Rick passed away? Yeah. So I started seeing a counselor. Actually, I was seeing her while he was sick. Um, and I still now see her and I'm March will be eight years. So, you know, it 
grief doesn't go away when you ask about like the process of grief it just doesn't go away. exactly yeah there and i live a fantastic life and i have an amazing boyfriend and things are great but it's there it's so there so so that's one thing that's super important um definitely my my own health in terms of eating and things i really let that go while he was sick um sometimes like well you don't want to eat things that are going to smell because he's nauseous so i'm like living on whatever i can eat that doesn't that i don't have to cook you know um, or I wasn't eating at all for periods of time, or I was just eating cake because cake is <laughs> sad, you know? And so yeah, yeah. Um, definitely turning around my, my health and nutrition and exercise, all of those are things that, that I did. Um, and one of the really big things that I think helped me more than almost anything, and it's, I don't know why it surprised me because it shouldn't have, but just like there are cancer communities, there are widowed communities. So I ended up in a widowed group or several widowed groups, and that was helpful in and of itself. But then I noticed that there was a couple of people who were also in South Florida. And so I met widowed people in person and it was just a game changer for me. The same way that when I would meet people who were caregivers or patients, and when I said the word full fox, I didn't have to explain what that meant. And they knew about neuropathy and they knew about everything that goes with it. And it's this like comforting thing of not having to explain it. When I met widowed people and I met them in person and young widowed people, like I think I was, I was 37 when Rick died. So relatively young, um, it was a game changer. I made friends and I was able to socialize. And I, I always felt um, no matter how many people were around, I felt very alone. And sometimes when the more people you're with, the more alone you feel. And when I was with those people, that wasn't the case. So I had... Mm. I still had my cancer friends who I loved and I felt I didn't feel alone with them, but mostly just virtual. And then I had my widowed friends, um, total game changer for me without a doubt. And, and I'm going to one of their weddings this weekend. So, so, and we haven't even scratched the surface of the impact that you have had, um, in that bereavement space, the, the widow space and, and helping others get through that process. So I would like to, um, go ahead and invite you back. Um, very soon to to focus on that specific process and and tools because there's there's so many you know people out there who have lost and it and again it's not that's a part of cancer that is neglected big time right yes so so I hope I hope you can come back and have an episode on that yeah I would love to I talk too much <laughs> no no that's the wonderful thing like and and so I you know we need to split it into into different chunks for different topics sure. so you don't talk too much at all it's wonderful well this is a talking format so you can't really talk too much on a podcast <laughs> bingo okay. all right fair um but now we are it is time we are going to put you on the man up to cancer hot seat the gauntlet of random questions is coming your way are you prepared for this probably not but I'll do it anyway <laughs> yeah I don't think you are Kellen's like you can't see her because this is audio, but she is. Um, she has like she does have like an evil grin right now. Um, okay, ready. Uh, pickles on sandwiches, yes or no? On the side. That's fair. Okay, what what place in the U.S. would you most like to visit that you've never been to before? Austin, Texas. Man, it's almost like you'd prepare. People, I did not give her the questions beforehand. That just, it was like, bang, came to her. Um, okay, awesome. Um, if if Stacy Runfola ends up in the, gets a rap sheet, if she gets arrested, what is her family going to think that you had done? 
Oh, geez. I get angry pretty easily. I probably just started yelling too loud and then punched someone in the face, probably in the stomach. <laughs> yeah, you want to protect your hand. Go for the soft right, spot. That's right. All right. Hey, I like that. That's a good one. Um, what actress would play? I have an idea on this. And Kellen can weigh in too. Before you answer, Stacy, okay. what actress? What actress would place would play you in a movie about your life? Kellen, is there anyone that comes to mind? I got one. Uh, Mini Driver, but not. But yeah, right. but maybe like, but like you know, I I think you're Stacy. Looks, I don't know her age, but she seems younger than Mini young. Driver. So I would say a younger young. Mini Driver. <laughs> that is awesome. I was going to say a <clears throat> a younger Andy McDowell. Oh, yeah. Okay. Same, same, right. same, same realm. Same, same realm. Right. It's the curly black yeah. hair. You yeah, know, yeah. Very bright. I can see that. Yeah, okay. So yeah. the one that I actually get all the time. All right, here we go. Gray, except for pre-nose job, pre-her nose job. Jennifer Gray, pre-nose job. Yeah, like... um. From uh, from Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I get okay. that a lot. <laughs> so, See, these I, are, I hey, it. man, these are all good references. Like you're, you're, I know. Yeah, I'm not you're doing all right. <laughs> okay, um, last one. If you could only choose one weapon to use in during the zombie apocalypse, hmm. what are you going to fight them with? There's been a variety of answers on this one. Oh, man, that, that's a tough one. All weapons are available to you. All weapons are available. Yep, you can even make one up. Well, so I'm thinking like of choosing a person to be my weapon, like a personal bodyguard. That's. <laughs> I like where this is going. All right, right. all right. That's so like a shield, like a human shield. <laughs> John Wick. She's gonna she's gonna use John Wick as her personal bodyguard, yeah. and he has all the weapons. That's right. So, and they're yeah. like all part of him. So it's yeah. all one uh. weapon. Well, I want to, that. These have all been awesome. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I loved your description of life now. Like you are living with joy and purpose, but there is that. There's always that baseline grief of going through what you've gone through, and um, to say that and talk about what it is really like to help people who are going through the same thing. Um, it means a lot to, for you to come on here. So thank you so much for sharing your heart with us. Thank you both. And we're having you back. It was lovely so. meeting you. <laughs> you. You'll get an invite soon. All right. All thanks, right. Stacey. Excellent. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to support our mission, visit patreon.com backslash man up to cancer. Monthly subscriptions start at five bucks, less than a single cup of coffee at some establishments. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack Doors are always open. Big thanks again to Blue Note Therapeutics for sponsoring today's podcast. Blue Note creates prescription digital therapy apps to help patients address the common yet overlooked side effects of cancer like stress, anxiety, and depression. Check out their new fully remote clinical trial at bluenotetherapeutics.com backslash trials.